Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Annie Corrigan. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and professionals and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Christine Barber. She's taught political science at Indiana University since 1990. And along with her husband, Gerald C. Wright, she's the author of the textbook Keeping the Republic. She's also the food editor for Bloom Magazine, and she teaches about sustainability and food issues in her work at IU as well. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I'd like to ask all of my foodie guests, what's in your fridge right now? Oh, God. <laughs> Is that, do they all say that? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm so glad you can't see. I can make anything up. <laughs> it's no, true. I'll tell you the truth. What's in my fridge? We actually have two fridges. Uh, we found a great, great old commercial fridge about 20 years ago and bought it. And we keep it in the garage and it's filled with condiments and all the things that don't fit in the, in the inside fridge. So there's a ton of stuff in my fridge. There's leftovers. Um, there, we went up to Indianapolis to a big Italian restaurant chain, Mangiano's, and if you order a classic pasta dish, they give you one to take home. And so we have eggplant parmesan in our refrigerator, and we have spaghetti and meatballs in our refrigerator, and we have we have a lot of cheese, and we have um, a lot of condiments. <laughs> if you could think there's one food item that you could imagine never, ever living without, what would that be? That would be profoundly disturbing if I never got to have eggplant again. We're going to get into your teaching, teaching political science, teaching about food a bit later, and talk about the food issues that are all around the media these days. But let's go way back to the origins of your foodiness. Have you always lived the sustainable, organic, healthy eating lifestyle, or did you have sort of an aha moment? Um, No, I haven't always lived it, and I don't think I had a single aha moment. I think it crept up on me. I, I don't remember the the moment where I thought, gosh, it doesn't make sense to import food from South America when I can eat food from Bloomington. Um, I don't remember when I got the slow food bug, bit by the slow food bug. But I just remember one day thinking, good grief, you know, this doesn't make any sense. The way we eat doesn't make any sense. And it was right about the time. It was before Michael Pollan. It was just at the beginning of the slow food movement. Slow food was just kind of coming out into the United States. And so there was some stuff that you could kind of prompt yourself to think about it a little bit. But, you know, I live in Bloomington. I have a farmer's market that is better than anybody else's farmer's market. So, you know, that's how I shopped and that's already how I was eating. And it just kind of, it just kind of all the pieces fell together. Speaking of slow food, you're the co-director of Slow Food Bloomington. Mm -hmm. A little background on that. Slow Food is an international organization whose aim it is to, quote, fight the encroaching wave of fast food culture by promoting a way of eating that is local, seasonal, leisurely, and convivial. How great is that? I can't imagine anyone wouldn't want to get behind that. I know. Really? Really? Why would you not? You know why? Because because Americans might like to think they eat that way, but um, I saw a bumper sticker once that said, if you are what you eat, I'm fast, cheap, and easy. And that <laughs> kind of, you know, why wouldn't you want to eat that? <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to eat that way? I mean, we're busy people. We're running around all the time. We're, you know, we spend, Americans spend less on food than almost any other country. You know, we just don't want to devote that much of our income to food because we have stuff. We have lots of stuff. And so, you know, it's it's appealing. Slow food's appealing. But when people have to sit down in the moment and make a decision about what to eat, it's often not what we choose. Well, let's talk about the organization in particular as it relates to Bloomington. How has the community received that organization? 
you know, the food world is so interesting to me because we're so redundant. There's so many people doing similar things. There's Slow Food. There's the Local Growers Guild. There's There are campus groups, campus sustainability groups. There are lots of different people doing really similar kinds of things. The city's got sustainability initiatives. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So I think the community takes well to the idea of this, but I don't necessarily think that means that – I mean, Slow Food has about – 50 local members, I would say dues-paying local members. And that's after they ran a membership drive that said, basically, you can give us any amount of money and we'll call you a member. So, you know, they're really trying to work up the, the membership roles. A lot of our active members are either chefs or farmers, um, which means they're very, very busy, very, very disorganized people as a rule. And so we're kind of a haphazard group, and I think it's really actually time for us to sit down and get our act together. For a long time, we were the powerful center of slow food in Indiana, and now Slow Food India is really, which was, you know, kind of started slow and took forever to get its feet on the ground. Now they're really doing all kinds of exciting stuff, and every time I get an email from them, I just go, oh, God, we're, we have our hands full. You say that chefs and farmers are the primary members of this group. That is one of the criticisms of the slow food movement, that we're not reaching the people who eat fast food. We're not reaching the people in the lower rungs of the economy. How do we do that? Well, I mean, that's such a good question. And I th the, the criticism that I hear is that slow food's an elite movement and that that doesn't really trickle down and that it's an expensive movement and people can't afford to eat that way. And I think both of those things are largely true in a, in a weird way. It is an expensive way to eat, especially if you belong to a culture that says, let's spend as little on our food as we can. Cheap food is good. If that's the way you think about food, then yeah, you know, going to the farmer's market and buying Capriol Farms goat cheese and some grass-fed beef from Fiedler Farms, that's more expensive than going to Marsh and just getting the, you know, whatever's cheap that day. It is undoubtedly more expensive. I think two things about that. One, I think it wouldn't be stupid for us to get used to spending a little bit more on more healthful food that would actually save us money in the long run. Two, I think the more people eat local sustainable food, the more demand there will be, the more production there will be, the cost will come down. You know, it, when it's a small niche market, it's going to cost more. And that's almost inevitable. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. But it has to start somewhere. The fact that it's seen as an elite movement doesn't seem to me to be a reason not to do it. It seems to me to be a reason to say, well, let's try to make it less of an elite movement. I think Michelle Obama's doing great things with it. I think the way you do it really is you don't try to go to people sitting in front of the TV with a bag of Doritos and a six-pack of beer and, you know, a big pot of spaghetti on the stove and, you know, who are eating the way they've always eaten or bags of McDonald's or whatever it is and, and say, hey, change the way you're, you've been eating for the last 50 years of your life. I think you talk to little kids and you say, hey, taste this carrot right out of the ground. How good is that? Tastes like candy, doesn't it? You know, and that kid can say, hey, this is how I want to eat and can sort of rethink, you know, before those, before the advertisers and the Saturday morning cartoons and all the, you know, cereal ads and McDonald's ads and everything have gotten their claws into their brains, um, they can sort of think about what they want to, how they want to eat and where their food comes from and why it matters. And I think working with kids is just a much more fruitful approach in a lot of ways than trying to convince people who are, you know, perfectly happy with the way they eat that there should be a way that they should be happier. Well, you mentioned two things that are in the news these days, Michelle Obama and her Let's Move campaign, trying to fight childhood obesity across the country. She's also working to get healthier foods into Walmart, which is a, a new thing that could 
potentially affect some major change. And advertisers, advertisers marketing to children, the sugary, the unhealthy foods, marketing that to kids. So we'll talk about that a little bit later because that's definitely in the news. Let's get to a piece of music right off the bat. We're going to listen to music here of Willie Nelson. Tell me why you've selected this. This is Stardust. Well, actually what I did is I started with Stardust and then I selected Willie Nelson because <laughs> because I live in Bloomington and Stardust is one of my favorite songs. It always it always has been. And my parents used to listen to it when I was a kid and then I came here and found out that Hokey Carmichael was from here and sort of it's had a, a deep part place in my heart since then. And I just love Willie Nelson. I love almost everything Willie Nelson does. So what what better combination? Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming of a song, the melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you. When our love was new And each kiss an inspiration Music there written by Hoagy Carmichael, a Bloomington son that was Stardust, performed by Willie Nelson. You're listening to Profiles here on WFIU. I'm Annie Corrigan. Our guest today is Christine Barber. Looking at your teaching information through Indiana University, I see that you teach Introduction to Political Theory and Introduction to American Politics. You also teach a course called Living a Sustainable Life that's listed as a 200-level class. So that's probably intended for a first- or second-year student. And the cool thing about that class is it was open to the public, and we'll talk more about that in a second as well. Your professional duties and assignments aside, what do you like about teaching beginners, teaching the newbies? There is a period of time. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. We were talking about freshmen. We're going to have a big food event in the next September called Big Red Eats Green. We're going to take over Dunmeadow with farmers and chefs and have a big local sustainable food event. And we were talking about when to have it. And we said, let's have it early, early in the semester. Because there's a look that freshmen have when they first when they first get here. They look like little kittens, you know, they have this little hopeful, eager look about them. And they come and they sit in class and they're so happy to be here. They're so excited. They're so fresh. And I love those kids. It lasts about six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Doesn't last a Thanksgiving. And slowly they kind of get socialized, they kind of get jaded, they kind of, you know, I don't have to come to class, oh, you know, I can get by without doing the reading, oh, there's so much partying and stuff to go, you know, they start to to become college students instead of these, these kids in this transitional stage. But in that transitional stage, they're so excited and so eager to learn and so, so open. And some of them hang on to that, some of them do. And that quality of openness that I haven't decided on my major yet and I'm interested in everything. So I'm taking classes I'm excited about. And, you know, this is bright-eyed eagerness. I love that. There's nothing more fun than trying to teach a kid who is excited about what it is that you have to teach him. And 
it's so gratifying. There's nothing worse than trying to teach somebody who has already made up their mind or who's only taken this because it's a requirement or I enrolled in this class because it's the only one that, that you know, met after 8 o'clock in the morning that I could fit in my schedule or, you know, when you start getting all those things, that person's not there because, hey, wow, politics is fascinating and I want to learn how it works. They're there for some of the reasons. So freshmen have that, by and large, are where I find that quality of, of newness. So let's talk about living a sustainable life. That featured a number of guest lecturers, folks from the Bloomington community, including Jeff Meese, some people from the government, the Bloomington government, professors from the departments of poli sci, English, biology, apparel, merchandising, hyper, among others. So I'm sorry, I missed the class because that sounds amazing. I wonder what you learned listening to a number of your colleagues talk about this common theme of sustainability. Well, I learned a lot, and in fact, that's why the I, that's why we did the classes because I was um, thinking about we were coming up on the sustainability semester, and I was thinking about the fact that I sit I'm the co-chair of the food working group of IU's Office of Sustainability. So Bruce Jacobs, who's the director of the IMU, and I co-chair this food group, and we're doing the big red eat screen thing. We're working with a lot of student groups to 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 try to get. It. Uh, an awareness campaign about where does your food come from and why does it matter? And I thought, God, I really, I, I've got this food thing down, but I don't know anything else about sustainability. I mean, it's like I'm in a tunnel. You know, if you ask me this uh, food sustainability question, I can answer it. But, you know, I know we're supposed to turn off our lights and recycle. But I mean, does recycling really make a difference? You know, I've heard it does. I've heard it, you know, some people say it doesn't. You know, what does make a difference? And what you know, we make choices every day. I tell students, think about how many food choices you make. You know, every time you walk by a candy dish and decide to either stick your hand in it or not, you're making a food decision. Every time you go to the store, every time you sit down to dinner. Well, we make all those other decisions besides food, and I'm making them, and I'm probably not making them in a sustainable way. So I thought as a, a class to sort of be the centerpiece of the of the sustainability semester, wouldn't it be great if we could have all the people from all the other different areas. I sit in this executive board on, on the Office of Sustainability, and there's sustainable computing people, and there's sustainable transportation people, and there's sustainable this and that and everything. And I thought, let's just let's get them all in here and teach a, a sampler class where students can say, hey, what is this all about? Let me find out. Let me take a little of this, a little of that. And then, oh, I want to take a class with this person. I think I'll go off and follow this, this up, or I'll follow that up. We did a little service learning. Students got out and worked in the campus and in the community in gardening projects and sustainable um, agriculture projects. We had fabulous people come in. We got to have uh, visitors to campus. Uh, Tom Friedman came in and talked to the class and, you know, folks who were coming through here for the sustainability semester um, came through the class and we had Wendell Berry. I mean, talk about exciting Wendell Berry in your classroom. Oh, so I, I kind of taught it for me. Um, all I had to do was be the glue and teach a few food classes and sit there in the front row and soak it up. So it was tremendous fun. We probably will not be offering it again, unfortunately, because it's a hard class to figure out how to – I mean, all these people came in and did all this work and didn't get compensated for it. They were just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. You can't ask them to do that every semester. But it was – for me, it was, it was so much fun. Did you change how you live in any way because of what you learned? Yeah, I did. I'm buying a hybrid car instead of a, another car. I sort of rethought vacations a little bit. We'll talk about that. Well – I can't say I've changed the vacations I'm taking, but I've rethought just the 
kinds of things I want to do on vacations, the kind of ways I want to explore other cultures, the kinds of things I want to find out about. We had somebody from Hyper come in and talk about sustainable tourism. You know, I had never thought. I didn't know there was sustainable tourism. I mean, I hadn't thought about it. It just, it was a good way to, it was a good lens to look at things through. I mean, the woman who came in and talked about sustainable apparel, I mean, she came from apparel merchandising and she talked about clothing and what, what you know, we, we feel sort of self-righteous when we give our clothes to the goodwill and then they go get dumped on a culture that, and, and ruins the textile, indigenous textile industry of a third world culture that's struggling to survive. And we say, you know, I didn't think about those unintended consequences down the line or I didn't think about where this fabric comes from or who's doing the sewing on this or what the labor conditions are. So, yeah, I just, it opened my eyes in a lot of ways. It just, you can't help but have a sort of shift in your perspective about things you take so for granted. I mean, the thing about all the sustainability issues, including food, is that they are things that are second nature to us by now. You flip the light switch. You don't say, oh, I'm going to think I'll use, I think I'll consume some electricity. You just flip the light switch. You don't say I'm going to, you know, import some food from, uh, you know, a place at great expense and, and large amounts of fossil fuel. You say, mm, you know, bananas. I mean, <laughs> we just, it's, it's a lot of this is just second nature. And so what the sustainability class did for me, um, and I would hope it did for my students, but I don't know, was to get get me to stop before those little decisions and say, hmm, you know, let me let me make a thoughtful choice here instead of a knee jerk choice. As I said, this class was open to the public. It was the Bloomington public. <laughs> what do you suppose that was like having Indiana University students sit next to? people from the Bloomington public? Well, frankly, they didn't sit next to them. We, we basically kept the community people in the back rows because they kind of came and they went, and we, te- we took attendance with the IU students, the students who were enrolled. So the rules of the class were anyone's welcome to come and attend. They had to sit in the back rows or the side sections of Woodburn 100. Students sat in the front in assigned seats, and the students were the ones who were allowed to participate, although there were days when everybody participated, depending on the speaker. If the speaker was cool with it, we let anybody talk. But it was terrific. It's the second time I've done this. The first time was immediately after 9-11, and of course, nobody had spring semester rolled around, and nobody had a 9-11 course on the books because we were still stunned from the fall events. And so I did the same thing within my department. We taught a class called 9-11 before and after. And I just pulled together 16 colleagues and said, I can't teach this course, but we can. And so we did. And it was the best teaching experience of my life, I think. And I got to sit and watch really smart people grapple with really intractable problems. And students you know, all of us were coming through. I mean, in a way, it was different than the sustainability class because we were all coming through an emotional experience that was unlike anything else really in my lifetime. And, and But we did the same thing. We opened it to the community, and the community loved it. And so when we did the sustainability thing, I said, let's do the same thing. You know, let's just open it up. And the folks who came, there were probably 20 people who came every day. And there were some people who came because it's Tom Friedman, it's Wendell Berry, it's, you know, for individual things. Uh, a lot of different classes had, students had uh, assignments to go to one or two sustainability events on campus in addition to their courses, and our class counted for them. So we had a lot of students who weren't enrolled in the class come in. I mean, they would come up to me afterward, the, the community members would, and they would just say, God, thanks, you know. There's so many ways that the community and IU get along well together, but to put people together in a classroom and to just make it be open is really 
in a way, it's so obvious to me. We can't do I mean, they said, why don't you do this with all your classes? Well, room scheduling. You know, we, our, our classes are filled to capacity. The rooms aren't big enough as it is. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why. And it can be intimidating to a student to have, you know, 70-year-old wise person from the back of the room, you know, sharing experience that that 20-year-old couldn't possibly relate to. But I wish we could do more of it. It's really, for me, it's one of the most exciting things I've done around here. Well, I would imagine that the topic of sustainability is interesting to a variety of people, that there's something about that topic that brings people in that other topics wouldn't. Well, I think that's right. And I th- actually think that's true about a lot of topics. I mean, we talked about doing it for the semester course next semester. And I just, I did it on top of my regular courses. And it was really a lot of work. And I didn't think I, I had another one in me right away. But it would have worked for that. That was going to be war and peace. And it would have worked for that, too. I mean, think about how many smart people on campus there are who could talk about different aspects of making war and making peace. And I think people in the community would be all over it. Well, let's talk about another class you taught politics and food. It seems to combine your two biggest professional interests. So take me inside this class. What are the sorts of things that you covered? Well, it's funny. I I would love to say that it was my idea to teach this class, but actually it wasn't. There, there aren't a lot of politics and food classes out there. They're starting to be now, but there weren't before. There aren't any books, really good books. Um, although I'm going to write one. And then I was going to say, be. hole in the market I, for you. I've got it. I've got it. I just was talking to my husband one day about classes and things we haven't taught. And he said, you know, you ought to teach politics and food. I mean, you're spending all your leisure time thinking about food. You're up to your eyebrows in it. You you know, we've written about this. We've got this ongoing textbook project on, on American politics. He said, you know, you've got, the, you've got the two pieces of it. Why don't you teach that class as a topics class in political science? He's also a political scientist. And I just I just looked at him and he's like, <laughs> the commercial, right? I could have had a VA. And I was like, oh, I got to be teaching about things I really, really love. Why aren't I doing? that. So I've taught it different ways over time. I used to teach it as a very small honors class with just 20 students. Last time I taught it, I had 115 freshmen, sophomores, kittens, <laughs> kittens and graduated, just recently graduated kittens with a separate honors discussion section that led by me. So they get one hour of me, but they get three hours of the, of the regular class. It's just a lecture class. And that changes what you can do. The thing about food is, on the one hand, it is the most Eating is the most personal and intimate act. I mean, it is to sustain our bodies. What we put in our mouth is our way of nurturing our body, and there is nothing more private and personal than that. And yet every decision we make about that very personal, intimate choice is influenced by politics. It's influenced by power. It's influenced by people and events and forces beyond our ken. And we don't make those connections. And so I try to start off with students at the very personal level. We keep a food journal for a couple of weeks where they write down what they eat, um, how satisfying what they ate was, how much of it they ate, who decided what they were going to eat or where they were going to eat, just to kind of get them thinking about the fact that, wait a minute, they, they, I mean, they come up with all kinds of, you know, I always eat where my roommate wants. I never, you know, eat where I want. Or they, I eat more when I'm with my friends. I eat less when I'm by myself. I eat, you know, more in a restaurant. I, you know, just sort of, they, they can observe all kinds of patterns that they wouldn't observe if they weren't writing it down. And I also have them do a food tree, which is like a family tree, but it has food on it. So it looks like a food tree, only when it's you got your grandmother's name, you write the dish you associate with her or her favorite dish. Students have to go back and interview as many living family members as they have, which is tricky because um, some of them don't have any, but some and some of them have way too many. But they sit down and and, and ask questions that most of them haven't thought to ask yet, 
probably will think to ask at some time. And because of the way these things work out, often the people you need to ask those questions of aren't there by the time you get around to it. You know, there are a lot of recipes and food stories I would love to have for my grandparents that I never asked until it was too late. And then I asked the, the next generation who, you know, then you're getting it with their interpretation stuck in there and their their view of events, their biases, their values and stuff get in. And so you don't really hear where, where your food roots are. But we're a product of those food roots, how we eat and what we value in terms of family decision making and the power in the home. When they when they do the food tree, they, they, they not only try to go back and figure out who did the cooking, but who did the deciding. Because you know, deciding what to eat is in a way deciding who we are. And so if that decision is being made by by mom and grandma, then even though grandpa was the one who had all the power in the family, well, he didn't really have all the power in the family. You know, Or in, in my case, for instance, my mom was the primary cook in our family, although not the, I mean, my dad kind of did, you know, show dad cooking, you know, things with flames. <laughs> grilling. And big, yeah, exactly. But my mom cooked the food that my dad's mom taught her how to make to sustain the barber tradition you know, it wasn't the food she'd grown up with. It was the food he'd grown up with. And, and it was sort of passing this this role of keeping the family defined as this sort of American Lebanese family. This this food went down, you know, because it was women's, women's job to do the cooking. So they look at power in their family who makes the decisions. Um, and they're looking – we're looking at food really close up and personal for the first part of the class. And then we zoom back and we watch Food Inc. and we watch um, – and I create instant vegetarians for, for several weeks. Um, we look at the bigger picture of where our food comes from and if we are what we eat, who are we, writ small and writ large. And so you know, we, we read uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And we read uh, – there's a book called Food Politics. I shouldn't have said there was no books on this. There's a new book on it, but, but mine will be better. We read some some selections from that. We we look at we look at the the sustainable food movement. Mark Bittman, uh, Michael Pollan, Joel Salatin, and we look at the critics of those people. People who say, you know, this isn't uh, a profitable way to farm. This isn't a any healthier way to eat. This is all you know smoke mirrors and trends. And so we look at both sides of it. Um, I I come into this with such a, a clear bias that unlike my American politics class, where I I have some some views, but I, I'm more middle of the road and I can give examples and criticisms from both sides. And this one, I just say right up front, hey, make no mistake. You know, I'm a, a slow foodie from way back and this is my point of view. I'm willing to look at it and I'm certainly willing to give you look at your views and I'm certainly happy for you to leave the room with the same views you came in with at the beginning of the semester as long as you have really good reasons for them. I don't try to pretend I'm not an advocate. I am. I mean, I have a community role as an advocate. It would be goofy for me to pretend I don't. So we look at personal and and broader issues about food. It's called the politics of what's for dinner. So it's got that, you know, it's on your plate focus. Yeah, exactly. Well, I have to ask uh, for your food family tree, what dish do you associate with your mother? The dish I associate most closely with my mom is her potato salad recipe, which is one I did manage to get. My mom is still alive, but she doesn't remember how to make potato salad anymore. She, she, we argue about what goes into it. But I managed to get it early enough. And I had to do it the way a lot of people have to do it. You have to stand there and watch her do it because she has no clue what goes into it. 
And so I, I have her potato salad recipe. Every time I came home, whenever I came home from college, she would make a giant bowl of potato salad, and I would eat the whole thing. And, I mean, I'm talking giant bowl of potato <laughs> salad. That's the dish I, I associate most clearly with her. Um, but on Thanksgiving, I make her sweet potato recipe without fail. Um, I make all of her. I make her stuffing. I make her side dishes that, that she made. So my Thanksgiving table in some ways differs because I've started some of my own traditions, and in some way it's really hers. And then because she was the cook of these Lebanese things, the line is, I mean, it's the Lebanese tradition. And my mom, we, we all sort of self-identify. We say, we're Lebanese. And my mom always says, and Irish. Like, well, did you ever cook anything Irish, mom? Because, you know, I'm thinking grape leaves and hummus and you're thinking, uh, what? <laughs> I didn't see any corned beef and cabbage in that house. Actually, it wasn't Irish. It was Scottish, which is probably why there was no corned beef and cabbage. But that's how pronounced an identity it was is I don't even remember what it was because she kind of got subsumed into this this other thing. Oh, that's cool. Well, another piece of music. So let's go now to Jimmy Buffett. I am a huge Jimmy Buffett fan, although I'm not actually a parrot head and I've never been to a concert. I love warm weather and water and Jimmy Buffett, it could be the depths of winter and I can put Jimmy Buffett on in Indiana and feel the the, the sand in my toes. I just, I do. And this song, One Particular Harbor, just reminds me of, we have a, a cottage in Apalachicola, Florida, which is a goofy part of Florida because it's not what people would think of as Florida. It's the way the Keys used to be. Apalachicola is not close enough to a major airport to have really drawn a lot of tourists. It's in the panhandle, so it's got seasons. It's not warm all the time. It's a little fishing village that's not very prosperous. And it's gone through a lot of identity crises. And I just go there and sit and look at the water and just get lost in it. And I miss that when I'm not there. I love Bloomington. I've lived here for over 30 years. But I grew up near water and I crave water. And Jimmy Buffett is water. there of Jimmy Buffett, One Particular Harbor. This is WFIU's Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. We're speaking today with Christine Barber. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. From what I can gather, you're a big home cook. What do you love about it? I don't know the answer to that question exactly. Um, but I was thinking about it last night because I've been out of out of the kitchen 
recently. I had some minor surgery, and I can't stand up for long periods of time. And so my husband's been doing the cooking, and I've been doing the the whining. But last night, my fingers felt itchy. I thought I've, I've got to just go cook something. I'm just going to cook. I actually cooked sweet potatoes. I made sweet potato hash. Um, and it was wonderful. And I made some mushrooms to go on a steak we were cooking. And I made a- another vegetable. But I just I thought, what is that itchiness in my? I mean, I just I feel like I got to do this. I just got to do it. And I, I I can't tell you what that is. It's kind of a creative thing. It's the same way I feel sometimes when I'm going to write. When I really have something, you know, that I want to say, or I just feel like I don't know what I want to say. But if I just sit down and write, I'll find out what's in there. It's a creative itch, I guess. That's what I really love about cooking. I also like the therapy of chopping. I like rhythmic chopping. I like, you know, the stirring and the – I'm a control freak in the kitchen, which will come as no surprise to anybody who knows me. People say, can I help? And I say, yeah, just get away from me. <laughs> I'm not good Do at – Do the dishes at the end. At the end, yeah. I'm not good at delegating because then I have to think about what I'm doing and I'm mostly doing it on an internal schedule that, that works for me. But it's, it's a very soothing, meditative kind of – um, activity when I'm just in the mindless moment of cooking. It is, you know, I mean, there's a zone with that. It's like there is with a lot of other things. And I often, you know, just watch my thoughts and boy, odd sometimes to see where they go. We were speaking a little bit earlier about Michael Pollan. He's an author and a food activist. He said that we need to reconnect with cooking and get back into the kitchen as a nation. He thinks that that would fix a lot of our eating problems in the United States. Do you agree with that? I do. I I realize it's a really hard thing to make happen. I mean, there's a reason why we're not in the kitchen as much. Um, And I see this really, really clearly with my students. When we go back and do their food trees and we talk about their food traditions, their moms are working and their dads are working. And so nobody has a lot of time to cook. And when I was a kid... My mom worked, but she didn't work full time. And a lot of moms didn't work. And a lot of people learn to cook from watching their parents. There's no parents to watch now. So we're getting separated from our cooking traditions because there's a generation there that doesn't really do that much of it. And, of course, that's a huge exaggeration. And, of course, there are people who cook. But a lot of the people who like to cook are people who are foodies. And cooking for them is this big la-di-da-di-da thing. And then there are the people who cook because they can't afford to eat out all the time, and so they cook because they have to get food on the table. And then in between that, there's just a lot of people who can just get carry out or, you know, get processed food and heat it up or, you know, let's eat out or, you know, it's, it's, it's cheaper in some ways. I mean, I, there are meals I can eat out cheaper than I can cook. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressures on us not to be in the kitchen. But the longer we're away from the kitchen, the more we forget – I mean, when I when – I, teach about food sustainability, I'm not just talking about environmental sustainability. It's sustaining our traditions and sustaining our, our culture. And they, there's a huge disconnect there. We're forgetting how to do that because – and we're going to lose it. I mean, we will lose our culture if we don't practice it. If we, if, if little kids, little boys and girls don't watch mom or dad in the kitchen and, and want to do what they're doing and learn those traditions, we'll forget in some deep sense who we are. So I think – his advice about getting back in the kitchen is important for that reason, quite apart from the other reasons. Um, it's healthier, by and large, to cook in the house. When you eat out, you're getting enormous amounts of fat and salt, and you're getting huge portions. But you know, the temptation is to say, wow, this is how much they gave me. This must be how much I'm supposed to eat. So we eat too much. And you know, we're, just, we're just not healthy. 
are, and one of the main reasons we're not healthy is because of the way we eat. So we're overweight. We have too much. I mean, salt may not be harmful for you unless you have blood pressure problems, but lots of us have blood pressure problems, and we're getting salt in every processed food that we eat, and we're getting all kinds of things that we don't know about. If you're cooking in your own kitchen, you can make the choice to buy grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef is much healthier. It doesn't have the cholesterol-damaging problems that grain-fed beef does. And grain-fed beef is what you're going to find in a restaurant, in a fast food restaurant, or most other restaurants. So you can buy healthier food and cook it. And that would that solves a lot of our problems. And then you can also make choices about where that food comes from. Because if you, especially if you buy your food at a farmer's market, you can ask where it comes from and you can ask how it was, how it was produced. And you can get answers that, you know, enable you to make good conscious choices. Let's talk about your two cookbooks. Speaking of being in the kitchen, they're both Indiana-based cookbooks. Why focus on Indiana food as opposed to just cooking in general? Well, because it's the food I know. If you're thinking about local, sustainable eating, one thing you do is celebrate where you are. And uh, there are good regional cookbooks in lots of parts of the country. I mean, there are some amazing cookbooks about the the panhandle, the Gulf Coast of Florida and the panhandle area. I mean, they're just the food traditions there are rich and wonderful. There aren't that many about Indiana. You know, we're a funny food culture. We're not Kentucky. You know, you just get south of the border and you got bourbon, bacon, and barbecue. You know, what do we have? The pork tenderloin sandwich and corn. I mean, <laughs> we don't have that same, you know, Chicago, St. Louis. You know, you go in almost any direction, you can find some really cool food traditions. You know, what we have is really good fresh food. We have some very talented people growing and producing that food and cooking that food. And so the cookbooks, both Indiana Cooks and Homegrown Indiana, are about celebrating what we do, cooking good, fresh food. And, and uh, you know, I, I want to celebrate my backyard. If you could think of one of your favorite or most successful recipes from one of those cookbooks that says Indiana, putting you on the spot right now, if you can think of one. Pork is such an Indiana kind of food, and, and some of the recipes in that book are really just home Indiana food, you know, dressed up a little bit, but really, really Hoosier cooking, new, new Southern kind of cooking in a way. And those are, those are the ones I think of as really celebrating Indiana. Let's shift gears now, talk about food in the news, food activism. Uh, I could list off any number of food-related issues that have come down the the pipe recently. First Lady Michelle Obama is fighting childhood obesity with her Let's Move campaign. We spoke about that a little bit. Any number of stories about food contamination, people getting sick from foodborne illnesses. World food prices are soaring. They're only going to get higher. Food labels are changing. They're being regulated. Marketing to kids is being looked at finally. So as a concerned foodie, as someone who knows politics as well, what are the issues that ping your radar? What are the issues that are of the utmost importance to you? Well, they're all important, you know. Um, and in a way, you just kind of rattled off the syllabus of my class. I mean, the nice thing about the way I teach the politics of what's for dinner is I can change around, you know, different topics as they become, as they, as they come up in the news. It's complicated and confusing. And one of the truths about the food industry is that they want us to be confused. They want to get a lot of conflicting news out there about food because if we're conflicted, we'll just do what's easy. You know, reach for the chips. You know, sit down with the burger because ah, they're telling me this is good for me. This is bad for me. This label says this. This label says I don't know what to do. Well, that's that's almost a deliberate 
marketing strategy. Um, there's a great book called Food Politics by a woman named Mary Nessel, who's a professor at NYU. And, um, you know, she, she just says, you know, she's worked with the as a nutritionist, she's worked with the Food and Drug Administration on the food pyramid. She says, you know what? There's just a lot of powerful interests out there really lobbying hard to get information out there that will make us better customers for them. They're not really worried about our nutrition, but they fund the food research that's done. They lobby the members of Congress who are making food decisions politically, and they lobby the bureaucracy that enforces what Congress does. There was an article in the paper the other day with a new food guidelines that have come out. They come out every five years. The new ones, for the first time, say that we should eat less. That doesn't sound like somebody just scaled an enormous mountain, but that was an enormous mountain. I mean, Nestle argues in her book correctly that we've always known that the way to be healthier is to eat less. But if you say eat less, then food producers say, well, wait a minute. You know, what do you mean eat less? You want people to you're going to hurt my business if you tell them to eat less. You should say eat more. Well, to the, if you look at the way the food guidelines have been designed, they they dance around it. They say things like choose leaner cuts of meat. They don't say eat less meat. You know, um, Mark Bittman, who was until recently the minimalist in the New York Times, he did a food column in the New York Times of sort of very simple cooking. You know, to strip away all the the frou frou nonsense and just you know do something sort of bare bones but delicious. He uh, recently had a health scare and his doctor said that he needed to think about how he ate. And he wasn't originally big on, on sort of sustainable issues, but thinking about his own diet kind of backed into it. He says, one of the biggest problems we have is meat. You know, we talk about all these different things we could do to improve our environment. If every American ate the equivalent of three fewer cheeseburgers a week, it would have the equivalent, he claims, of taking all the SUVs off the road. Because the way we produce meat, our factory meat production is just so horrible for the environment. And so he's, his way of dealing with this is not to not eat meat, but he's vegan until six. That's his rule. I mean, he just, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't eat meat until six o'clock. After six o'clock, I can eat meat. Vegan. Mm-hmm. No animal products at all before six. I believe that's how he does it. There's another guy, Ezra Klein, who writes a column in the Washington Post. Who's he's, he's a policy guy, but he also is interested in food politics. And he has come to the same conclusions that Bittman has about our meat production. He is a vegetarian, not for any other reason except that he thinks eating meat is not sustainable. But he allows himself, I can't remember exactly, I think two meat splurges a month, whatever he wants. But the rest of the time he's vegetarian. You know, people finding ways to sort of straddle the line of, you know what, the way we eat, if we keep eating the way we eat, it's just not sustainable. We can't keep doing it. We, we just can't keep doing it. You, it's, the way we produce meat is not a sustainable way to eat. And the amount that we eat is not sustainable. Well, it sounds like the issues relating to factory farms, health oh, issues in the United which are the States. things on my radar? Local farms, that's the stuff that you care about. Well, and a lot of them are sort of the same things. I mean, food security... Um, is improved if you're eating food that comes – I mean the, the safety of the food supply is, is improved if you're eating food that comes locally because you can see where it's produced and you, it doesn't have – there's so many places where it can be contaminated or where things can go wrong. Um, you know, If you're getting your organic food from China, who knows how organic it really is? <laughs> the closer it is to home, the more you can, the more you can vet where your food comes from. There are just so many – different things out there and they're confusing and complicated. If you just say, all right, I want to 
look at the way I eat. I make all these food decisions every day. I would like the bulk of those decisions to choose food from within a 100-mile radius of my house, to choose food that is not processed, so it's not made in a factory where I don't know how much salt and fat you know, and other freaky chemicals are in it, where um, I make most of my food decisions in a local, sustainable, healthful way. Then you don't have to worry about a lot of those big issues because you're going to do the right thing. You know, Poland's advice, I mean, the new trendy thing is to be able to sum up your food advice in a few words, and Poland's is eat food, mostly plant, not too much, mostly plants. And when you ask him, what is food? He says, it's easy. It's food your grandmother would have recognized as food. Think about that. That's a very simple rule. You don't have to get confused. You don't have to talk to the FDA and you have to look at a food pyramid. You know, in grandma's world, was this food? I think right off the bat, that means Gogurt is out. <laughs> <laughs> Uncrustables, nope, can't have that. You know, almost any processed food doesn't make the cut. And many of the ways our food is produced don't make the cut. And it's a simple rule, so it doesn't have to be confusing. And a lot of those issues you're talking about, you know, all kind of fall under that heading. Well, you sort of answered my last question there in, in a very nice, compact sort of way. I wanted to know what people can do, few small little choices throughout their day that they can do to eat more sustainably. But it sounds like... Try to get your food closer to home. You don't have to be a vegetarian. Just know where your meat comes from. Get it from a farmer that you've met. And you can eat meat um, the way a lot of cultures do, which is not as the main slab on the plate, but as something that adds flavor to the other stuff on your plate. You know, if you look at a lot of cultures, you know, there's meat in Thai cuisine, but there's not a big slab of meat. You know, I spent some. Uh, a vacation in, in Bangkok once and we were talking about the food and they said, well, you know, we just you know, we eat small bits of meat <laughs> and they do really, you know, it's really meat adds flavor to the food but it isn't the food. It's not what you fill up on. You know, meat should not be the main thing on your plate. You know, most of your plate should be colorful fruits and vegetables. You know, I think one of the things we can do is to spend a little more time and a little more money on our on our food. Think about the fact that the way we nurture our body is the most important thing we can do, really. If we're not healthy, we can't be there for other people. If we're not healthy, we can't be present for ourselves. If we're not healthy, we can't fight for the causes we believe in. If we're not healthy, you know, we dishonor ourselves and our creation in a fundamental way. So why would it be that we want to spend the least amount of time and money nurturing this wonderful being that we are? I mean, for me, that's, you know, that's just not that hard a choice. Well put. Christine Barber, you've called yourself a political science professor with a serious food habit. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Let's Thank go you. out on one more piece of music here, actually. This is a piece of music that's in French. It's called <laughs> Champs-Élysées, a performance here by uh, an artist that I'm not going to pronounce well, and that's okay. Why are we listening to this? We are listening to this because on a vacation once to the south of France, my husband and I were walking around a market. And if you've never been to a French market, they're just wonderful places. I mean, the, the food smells. I can remember amazing produce and cheeses and fish. I mean, that, it's, it's just such a vital, vibrant, colorful place. And we're walking through this market one morning, and this song came rolling from this, this one little uh, stall. 
I'd never heard it before. It was all in French. The only words I recognized were Champs-Élysées. You know, I know what that is. But it was jaunty and it was it was the spirit of this market. And it was what I love about France, which may be one of my very favorite places in the world. And there it was all in this one song. And I said to my husband, go buy me that song, please. And he said, what? I said, just see if they'll sell it. See if, and sure enough, they actually had CDs there. And, and so he went over there and, and got me that CD. And every time I hear it, I just, I'm there. Well, let's mentally go to France with you as we listen to this. Thanks so much for being with us here today on Profiles from WFIU Public Radio. We're in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Annie Corrigan. Thanks for listening. Je me baladais sur l'avenue, le cœur ouvert à l'inconnu. J'avais envie de dire bonjour à n'importe qui, n'importe qui. Et ce fut toi, je t'ai dit n'importe quoi. Il suffisait de te parler pour t'apprivoiser. Oh, Champs-Élysées, oh, Champs-Élysées, au soleil, sous la pluie. À midi ou à minuit, il y a tout ce que vous voulez aux Champs-Élysées. Tu m'as dit j'ai rendez-vous dans un sous-sol avec des fous qui vivent la guitare à la main du soir au matin. Alors je t'ai accompagné, on a chanté, on a dansé et l'on n'a même pas pensé à s'embrasser. Oh Champs-Élysées! The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.